This talk was given by Robert Roxanne Ritchie at Zen Mountain Monastery. Roxanne is a senior monastic in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. So, good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> When I look out and um, see this beautiful, reaching Sangha sitting here, upright and ready and listening with shining eyes and determined faces in earnest to practice the Dharma, I'm stopped. Even after my years here, I'm kind of taken aback and uh, I feel um, overwhelmed to be sitting here among you um, in this grand hall with the shiny floor and the high ceiling and the big windows open to the mountain sitting with us. It's more than enough to inspire anybody. But um, I am finding it difficult to say anything. Um, maybe we should just uh, sit here and let the rain give the talk. Um, but no. Uh, <laughs> I, I must offer something. I was surprised to be asked to give this talk today because, um, well, I just didn't expect it. And um, <clears throat> I looked and looked uh, to find some opening, some starting point to begin, but nothing seemed to rise up and command attention. I wanted some list of practices or virtues or attributes of a bodhisattva or a story or an experience or somebody's life. Our teachers have um, a, a great catalog of prompts for talks, but I didn't want to pres presume to speak on a koan. I did want um, something that would be useful, upaya, expedient means for students of the Dharma. I scratched my head and um, looked through dozens of books and thought and thought and worried and I wouldn't have anything, and uh, I didn't. Right up until Sachin was about to begin, and um, I became uh, rather desperate because I knew I wouldn't have any time to write anything once we started sitting. So I just stopped and waited and listened to my empty room until finally I decided to talk about what I know at least what I think I know, 
about the bare bones of my experience of practice over the long haul. That, I thought, uh, might be of use to students just starting out. And for those in the middle of it, I've had one, you know, a long haul, I mean. And thankfully, it's not over yet. So, like many of us, it began with a kind of hunger. As soon as I became self-aware, I wanted to know what this is, this life, this world. I wanted to know how things worked and why. When I wasn't at the swamp collecting aquatic insects, I spent my childhood in the basement, prying things open and looking inside. Alarm clocks, radios, frogs, deadbolts, carburetors, sunflowers, mom's toaster, etc., etc. I think all children want to know, to explore, to find out. And of course, the range of interests varies widely across the arc of humanity. I remember Roderick. He was a toddler, the child of a friend of my parents who came over on a Sunday. He was a curious boy. The chi- um, he didn't talk much, but he kept walking about the house, um, pointing at things and saying, I wonder why, I wonder why, um, it's a curious child. <laughs> Early or late, most of us um, know this mind. This elementary curiosity takes us into adolescence and maybe young adulthood. But at some point, <clears throat> we might start being a little less curious. It usually happens at that stage when we look around and see that, well, since we already know everything, what's there to be curious about? That juvenile arrogance lasts for a while, sometimes for a lifetime. But for most of us, eventually, the balloon, the balloon uh, springs a leak and begins to deflate. As we start to experience the next stage of life as a young person, we are confronted with something called reality. This is a rude awakening, a radical deflation. Pain, disappointment, the rent, the school loan, the broken heart, the nine-to-five madness, the crack in the windshield, headaches and troubles abound. Here, too, are the messengers the Buddha spoke about. The first three were the old man, the sick man, 
and the corpse, which taught him and us about the shocking truths of old age, illness, and death. The fourth was a wandering ascetic who reveals the existence of a path whereby all suffering can be transcended. These messengers speak loud and clear, but sometimes we still don't hear them, especially if we're young and full of ourselves. But reality can be persuasive. And at some point, if we have good karma, to be endowed with ears, we begin to pay attention. And we want to turn towards the path and maybe even take up the study of the Dharma. I think people come to the Dharma for many reasons. Usually, it has something to do with the fact of the suffering in our lives. Um, And the fact of the suffering of those around us and the wounded world itself, bleeding from the greed, anger, and ignorance of human beings. The great matter of life and death is most sobering and a terrifying prospect. We ache and long for freedom. And we ache and long for the liberation of sentient beings. Some of us avoid looking at it for a long time, but sooner or later we realize we cannot escape the first noble truth Life is suffering. There was a monk here when I first arrived. His name was Sankai. He still comes around sometimes. He was and is a powerful presence. He, got, he had a Gothic uh, baritone with a Netherlands accent. When I first heard Sankai chant the evening gathna, I was chilled to the bone. I heard it and felt it through my whole body. Let me respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time quickly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us should strive to awaken, awaken, take heed. Do not squander your life. I got it. Right. No time to waste. We must get to it. And now, this is 
the first and foremost reason to practice. And then, for many of us along the long haul path, come the books, the science, the philosophy, the history, the literature, and maybe along the way, theosophy, mysticism, the mysteries of the East, and finally, the bright, wild inscrutabilities of Zen and the sutras. What a rush. We feel like we're spinning in a vortex uh, or a black hole, approaching the center of something huge and all-consuming and bright. More, please. The world explodes in our minds, dazzling and exciting and engrossing. What a view. But at this stage, along the long haul, it is essential that we study and realize right view, to study and realize the Eightfold Path and the teachings of the Dharma. We are most fortunate. Not only have we been born into this more or less healthy human form and have this rare opportunity to study, Somebody, the Buddha, Gautama Shakyamuni, has gone, has thus gone, all the way to the bottom of the great matter, and has come back to teach us how we can come to realize it for ourselves. If we study his teachings, we can see the right view, the first step on the Eightfold Path, and know how to proceed. We can practice all we want on our own, but if we don't have a clear and correct view of the actual and true nature of things, we can spin a long time. In his human body, the Buddha lived a long time ago. But he left us the life of his teachings. And he left, he left us a glorious lineage of realized successors who have offered and do offer the live words of the embodied experience of the teachings. This means we can know what the right view is. Once we hear it, we want to find a way to get closer to it, to find out what is true, to know it for ourselves. But the books only take us so far. They leave us hanging on that vicarious cliff overlooking the possibility of actual experience. Some of the books are so eloquent 
and vivid and powerful and sound so true that we kind of live in them. We feel like we're standing in the wind on the forward deck of a great ship looking out over the sea with wild eyes and a pounding heart like a pirate on a frigate. But we can never actually feel the ocean itself this way. Never feel it blast up and soak us. And alas, we are returned to the cauliflower swirls of the wallpaper of our small rooms and the sound of the radiator knocking on December. But somewhere, something calls. It is said that there are just two rules on the path to the Dharma. Begin and continue. The first one is a kaleidoscope of karmic circumstances that provides us with this body and mind and the conducive conditions that enable us to learn and see what must be done. We often take all of that for granted. But it is an immense good fortune and opportunity that brings us into this Dharma Hall here today and an immense responsibility to take the next steps on the way. There seems to be a thread of light that wends its way through the days of our lives and leads us. We sense a path forward, but we are not sure. We have to go forward trusting the way. I remember a cross-country ski trip I took by myself once. It was February in northern New Mexico. The Southwest Nordic Center had provided me with a map to a yurt deep in the mountains where I could enjoy the wilderness in its most pristine and untouched splendor. But I didn't get to the trailhead at the Cumbres Pass until 4 o'clock in the afternoon and already the sun was setting. But there was a big moon rising, and I had driven a long way, and I was determined to get to the yurt. So I parked the truck and started out into the dimming dusk, a little unsure of the way, but confident with my map and the moon. The Nordic Center people had hung little orange squares of plywood um, in the forest, up in the trees like Christmas tree ornaments to mark the trail. But it was dark in the forest, and it was hard to see the markers. 
My breath kept fogging up my glasses because it was five below zero. Sometimes I had to go one way for a while and then backtrack to find the orange markers up another way. The snow was fresh and deep, and I had to break trail everywhere. It was exhausting and a harrowing experience. Not much different from my first forays into Dharma study. I'd go up some strange and exotic range of practices and teachings and then back again to restart and begin again. I think we can stay at that stage a long time, kind of looking around and trying out all kinds of possibilities, like a stranger in a strange land or like a spiritual tourist sampling this, sampling that. This is appropriate to a beginning practitioner, but at some point one has to stop, commit to the trail, and push into it, or you never get to the yurt. The Buddha has blazed the trail for us. With his teachings, he left us cairns and campfire rings and lean-tos and all kinds of signs and markers to help us find the way. Somewhere along the long haul, we might come to the Dharma because we see something or feel something, something big and powerful that seems to call to us from the wilderness or from somewhere inside ourselves or from a momentary experience of the ineffable or from falling in love with someone or something or an indescribable beauty or a baby or like Van Gogh, a starry, starry night. We are called. Some of us respond. Some of us get lost in the woods. Some of us show up here. These and many more reasons bring people to practice. This is how we become aware of ourselves aware of the ache in our bellies, become aware of the path, and begin to try to find a way in to seek the truth. In the Mahasaropama Sutra, the Buddha says, a clansman goes forth, a young pilgrim like ourselves, out of faith, from the household life into homelessness. These words can literally refer to a renunciant monk leaving home, but they can also speak to all of us at that time when we left the comfort of our usual distracted and painful way of living and thinking 
and began to seek a way into what is really true, the Dharma. Based on our experience, our reading, the words of teachers we respect, and what we know of the Dharma so far, we go forth out of faith. We have the faith to make a move. We trust what is calling us. So in the sutra, Buddha goes on to say that this clansman goes forth considering. He says, considering, I am a victim of birth, aging, and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. I am a victim of suffering, a prey to suffering. Surely, an end of this whole mass of suffering can be known. Sound familiar? The Buddha himself was confronted and driven by this question. It is the question. In the sutra, a woodsman is seeking the heartwood of the essential tree. The Buddha says, suppose a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, comes to a great tree possessed of heartwood. Ah, this could be it. This might be the Dharma. But the Buddha says, we are often distracted and temporarily satisfied with something less than the heart. And sometimes we feel rather proud of ourselves and hold up twigs and leaves as prizes. He says this is like the monk who becomes intoxicated with that gain, honor, and renown, that achievement. This monk is called one who has taken the twigs and leaves of the spiritual life and has stopped short with that. There is more. We know it. But here on the long hall road, we may be hung up on a book, an idea, a practice, a sweet temporary feeling, hung up on a youthful arrogance of thinking we've seen something and brandish it about as though we had obtained something. The Buddha says, like this monk, we may go on down the path to attain all kinds of wonderful prizes. Moral discipline and concentration and knowledge and vision. And we feel at each stage a kind of pride in the attainment. Like him, we may become intoxicated with our achievement at each point and think, now I've got it. And remain in that small circle of light, proud to show off 
this realization. He says it's like the woodsman seeking the heartwood of the tree, but being satisfied with twigs and leaves or the sapwood or the bark. But sooner or later, we feel the limits and the impermanence of our so-called prizes, and we return to active investigation, to active practice again. And we begin to ask the essential question again. If the woodsman or monk in our hearts perseveres and prevails, we can resume practice and continue on our long-haul path to the Dharma. Then, the Buddha says, when he is diligent, he realizes that his intention to find the heartwood is not yet fulfilled, and he does not become intoxicated with these points along the way, and he does not become negligent and fall into negligence, but persists in his resolve to seek the heartwood. This is the critical point. We can find entry here and sit with all these noble friends in this beautiful Buddha hall and think, that's it. Or we can put on a robe and learn how to bow and chant and think, that's it. Or we can come to some quiet ease in our sitting and think, that's it. Or we can pass a koan or two and think, that's it. There are so many mirages and twists and turns along the long hallway. But if we are diligent, like our monk friend, we keep practicing. With the help of our teachers and our sangha, we keep looking deeper into our lives. Dogen likes to encourage us to realize going beyond Buddha. I think this is his way of urging us to take up ceaseless practice. Buddha, or enlightenment, is not a noun. It's a verb, a constant and ecstatic and dynamic engagement with the living world. Thankfully, the long haul is endless. You never actually get anywhere. As my old teacher used to say, you leave home to go home, and all the time, You are home. While it can feel like painful and difficult, difficult, hard work in the beginning and at all points along the way, (laughs) the long haul is the way. The joyful truth is that it actually works. We just need to pay attention and keep on going and practicing. We need to keep on listening to the Buddha and following the trail 
He is marked for us. Here, monks, some clansman goes forth out of faith from the household life into homelessness, considering, I am a victim of birth, aging, and death of sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair. I am a victim of suffering, a prey to suffering. Surely an ending of this whole mass of suffering can be known. When he has gone forth thus, he acquires gain, honor, and renown. He is not pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and his intention is not fulfilled. When he is diligent, he achieves the attainment of moral discipline. He is pleased with that attainment of moral discipline, but his intention is not fulfilled. When he is diligent, he achieves the attainment of concentration. He is pleased with that attainment of concentration, but his intention is not fulfilled. When he is diligent, he achieves knowledge and vision. He is pleased with that knowledge and vision, but his intention is not fulfilled. He does not, on account of it, laud himself and disparage others. He does not become intoxicated with that knowledge and vision. He does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. Being diligent, he attains perpetual emancipation. And it is impossible for that monk to fall away from that perpetual liberation. These are the words of the Buddha. The Buddha concludes this passage in the sutra by saying, Thus, while needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, he came to a great tree possessed of heartwood, and cutting off only its heartwood, he took it away knowing it was heartwood. Whatever it was this good man had to make with heartwood, his purpose would be served. So this spiritual life, monks, meaning us all, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or attainment of moral discipline for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of this spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. I'll end with an old poem. Mapless, tentless, and cold, you cannot see where you are, nor rest in the drizzle. The wet brush envelops you. Game trails mislead you. You, who were once snug in a clearing with friends, were you so easily called away? There were images rippling in that pool below camp. Or was it the last of the sun glinting on the cliff above? Or the shadow of a large animal slipping away in there among the trees? These thickets 
are not those. The dervish spruce rake your passage from eye to eye, ridge to ridge. While you spend your breath, another sun sets. Broken branches, marks in the dirt, resin and scat confuse. There is no way but your own in this cracking tear and snap. But here now, in the dwindling light and the deepening chill, a ring of stones, someone less lost, left behind. Crouch like an animal at a spring, your hand on the damp ash, black yet warm in all this rain. Rise now, cut with the one tool you have, curls of dry shavings from a barkless branch and carry them home. Your fingers gently pull away the paste on top. Open the heart of the hole and find the sad orange glow weakly winking in the bowl. Bring what you have prepared to the ceremony, your face to the pit, not with the vigor of your youth, the frustrations of your middle age, or the chilled goose flesh of your ordeals. Bend to the work, and like a lover, send your softness steady, steady, through the windows in the small house of the coal. Watch how it brightens with each breath, how your long exhalation makes heat steady, steady, or the house goes cold. While your arms tremble with the weight of your body, look for a fire in the earth. See a shaving nearby, bend, whiten, bloom in flame. See how it relinquishes form. See how an old fire can burn again. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.